Rudolf Virchow was a prominent German physician and pathologist who was well-recognized for a number of medical breakthroughs. He studied venous thromboembolism, or VTE, extensively, and in the 1850s suggested that a clot in the pulmonary arteries is not de novo, but instead originates in the peripheral vascular system. He validated his hypothesis with multiple experiments and autopsies, and later went on to describe the three predisposing factors which are critically important in the development of VTE, stasis, hypercoagulability, and endothelial injury. These together became known as Virchow's triad. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, What is the Well Score? An Approach to DVT and PE. Deep vein thrombosis, DVT, and pulmonary embolism, PE, are conditions grouped under the term venous thromboembolism, VTE, which describes the formation of a thrombus, or clot, in the venous system. VTE occurs in about 1 to 2 per 1,000 adults each year. A deep vein thrombosis refers to the development of a clot in the deep venous system, most often occurring in the lower extremities, but also in the upper extremities, neck, splanchnic circulation, or cerebral venous sinuses. A pulmonary embolism, as the name suggests, occurs when a clot in the venous system becomes dislodged and embolizes to the pulmonary circulation, where it occludes a pulmonary artery and or its branches. A pulmonary embolism can be life-threatening and is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. Predisposing factors, or risk factors, for the development of VTE can be grouped into three main categories based on Virchow's triad. The first category is endothelial injury, which can occur in the context of surgery, infection, inflammation, chemotherapy, previous DVT, or external trauma. The second predisposing factor is venous stasis, or reduced blood flow in the venous system. This may occur in the context of surgery, prolonged immobilization, recent travel such as a long-haul flight, or stroke. Last but not least, hypercoagulability is a major risk factor in the development of VTE. There are numerous causes of hypercoagulability. Some of the most important ones to consider when seeing a patient with a new VTE are malignancy, inflammation, infections, medications such as combined oral contraception or hormone replacement therapy, pregnancy, central venous catheters, inherited or acquired thrombophilia, and lifestyle, including smoking and obesity. In summary, the three factors which make up Virchow's triad are endothelial injury, venous stasis, and hypercoagulability. It is important to keep in mind that up to half of the patients with acute VTE may have no clear provoking factors, in which case the VTE event is termed unprovoked. Characterizing the VTE event as provoked or unprovoked clarifies the context in which the VTE event occurred. This is important for estimating the risk of VTE recurrence if anticoagulation is discontinued after acute treatment and therefore influences decisions about long-term anticoagulation. There are validated risk prediction scores to help estimate the risk of recurrence in individual patients with unprovoked VTE, such as the HER-DO-2 score in women. The 
The first thing to recognize about venous thromboembolism is that there is a spectrum of presentations, and some are asymptomatic. When a patient has a deep venous thrombosis, they are often described as being either in the distal venous system, this refers to the calf veins, which are less likely to embolize and do not always need to be treated, or the proximal venous system, associated with a higher risk of embolizing and thus treated. A patient with DVT typically presents with unilateral calf pain, swelling, warmth, and erythema. The presentation of patients with pulmonary embolism also varies. They can be asymptomatic, in which case it may be diagnosed incidentally, for example on CT scan, or they can present with pleuritic chest pain and shortness of breath, with or without hemodynamic instability. Due to the heterogeneity of presentation, it is important to keep PE high on your differential for anyone with risk factors that we have discussed, as well as anyone with new-onset chest pain or shortness of breath. The approach to diagnosis and management of hemodynamically unstable PE is discussed in detail in a separate episode. Let's dive deeper into the assessment of patients with suspected PE. Most often, a pulmonary embolism will present with chest pain or shortness of breath. The chest pain is typically unilateral and pleuritic in nature. Chest pain has broad differential diagnoses, and you must therefore rule out other alternate diagnoses, including acute coronary syndrome, pericarditis, aortic dissection, pneumonia, gastroesophageal reflux disorder, and musculoskeletal pain. You will also want to ask about shortness of breath. It is important to get an understanding of the patient's baseline exercise tolerance and compare it to their current function. Consider other differential diagnoses for acute onset shortness of breath and ask patients pertinent questions to rule them out. These include heart failure, COPD or asthma exacerbation, and pneumothorax. Although less common, some patients with PE may also have hemoptysis, palpitations, and presyncope. Lastly, it is very important to ask about DVT symptoms in any patient in whom you are suspecting PE. Ask if they have any new leg pain, swelling, or erythema. Once you have established the patient's symptoms, you should screen them for risk factors for DVT or PE. It is important to ask about personal history and family history of VTE. You should ask specifically about recent surgery, trauma to a limb, hospitalization for acute medical illness, immobility, and long-haul travel. Are they known for cancer or have signs and symptoms concerning for malignancy, such as weight loss or a change in appetite? Are they on any medications which could increase their risk of VTE, such as combined oral contraception? Moving on to the physical exam, start by reviewing the patient's vital signs. Patients with PE are often tachycardic and hypoxic, and in the event of a hemodynamically unstable PE, may also be hypotensive. You should do a full cardiovascular exam, including an assessment of fluid status, as acute coronary syndrome and heart failure are on the differential. You should also do a full respiratory exam and assess for signs of respiratory distress, including accessory muscle use or tachypnea. Assess for pleuritic chest pain by asking the patient to take a deep breath. Lastly, assess the patient's lower extremities to see if they have any unilateral calf swelling, tenderness, erythema, or difference in temperature to suggest a DVT. Using a measuring tape to measure calf circumference can often be helpful.
moving on to investigations, a useful approach is to split them up into bedside, labs, and imaging. At the bedside, you will want to start with an ECG. This will be useful for ruling out any cardiac cause for chest pain, such as acute coronary syndrome. In PE, the most common ECG finding is sinus rhythm, while the most common ECG abnormality is acute sinus tachycardia. A commonly quoted finding of PE on ECG is the McGinn-White sign, otherwise known as S1, Q3, T3. This refers to a deep S wave in lead 1, deep Q wave in lead 3, and inverted T wave in lead 3. This finding reflects acute core pulmonale and right ventricular strain. It is thus nonspecific and is seen in 15-25% to 25% of patients with PE. Other possible findings on ECG include a right bundle branch block or right axis deviation. At the bedside, if you have sufficient experience, you can also consider doing a bedside point-of-care ultrasound to assess for right ventricular strain. However, ECG and bedside cardiac ultrasound are not sensitive or specific for PE. Moving on to lab testing, you will also want to order a CBC to measure the hemoglobin and platelet count, as well as creatinine, to ensure stable renal function before pursuing any imaging that requires contrast. Given ACS is on the differential, remember to order a troponin and CK. The troponin may be elevated in a PE, especially if there is right ventricular strain. It would also be important to include a VBG and lactate, particularly if concerned for obstructive shock which is discussed in more detail in our Massive Pulmonary Embolism podcast. Consider a beta-HCG in a woman of reproductive age. Finally, the D-dimer is a very useful test, but has a number of caveats. It is important to recognize that the D-dimer is a sensitive, but not specific marker of PE. It can be useful when combined with a clinical pretest probability for PE. For example, a negative sensitive D-dimer, less than 500 fibrinogen equivalent units, can rule out PE in a patient with a low clinical pretest probability of PE determined using a validated risk prediction model such as the WELL score. In other words, it has a strong negative predictive value, high sensitivity, and low specificity. It can be used to guide further investigations as per the WELLS criteria, which we will discuss in more details in a few minutes. Thrombophilia workup is not done in the acute setting but may be considered for selected patients after the acute phase in consultation with a hematologist or a thrombosis physician. Let's take a minute to talk about the WELLS score. The scoring system is based on pretest probability of PE and involves risk stratifying the patient based on their clinical history, focusing on risk factors such as the presence of malignancy and recent immobility or surgery, among other factors on physical examination, such as tachycardia and signs of DVT. Based on the score, patients can be stratified into three categories. Low, 0 to 1, 1.3% prevalence of PE in an ED population. Moderate, 2 to 6, 16.2% prevalence of PE. Or high risk, over 6, 37.5% prevalence of PE. For those who are low risk, according to the WELL score, a negative D-dimer rules out PE. If the D-dimer is positive, confirmatory testing with a CT or VQ scan is required. For those who have a moderate or high pretest probability according to the WELL score, a D-dimer is not required and you should immediately proceed to imaging 
The WELL score has been validated and is used across the world to risk stratify patients for DVT and PE. Further details can be found on MD-Calc or Thrombosis Canada. On imaging, consider a chest x-ray to rule out differential diagnoses. Two uncommon and insensitive but specific findings of PE on chest x-ray are Westermark sign, which describes a legemia distal to a PE, and Hampton's hump, which refers to a wedge-shaped infarct. Objective diagnostic testing with imaging is required to confirm or rule out a PE. CT pulmonary angiogram is routinely conducted to evaluate for the presence of PE because it is sensitive and specific for PE and readily available at many centers. CT pulmonary angiography requires intravenous contrast dye, and alternatives may need to be considered in patients with severe renal dysfunction, allergy to contrast, or those who are pregnant given the high radiation associated with CT imaging. In these situations, a suitable alternative is a ventilation perfusion scan, otherwise known as a VQ scan, which also has high specificity and sensitivity for PE, but may not be available at some centers. It is important to note that VQ scans are most accurate in patients with a normal chest x-ray, as parenchymal lung abnormalities can produce false positive results. Bilateral compression ultrasound of the lower extremities can be helpful to establish the presence of concurrent DVT at baseline, although this generally does not affect management. In the absence of contraindications, anticoagulation should be administered empirically if there is a delay obtaining confirmatory imaging. Moving on to treatment, remember to always go back to your basics and start with ABCs. If you are worried about the patient's airway or hemodynamic stability, call for help early and escalate care. We will focus on the management of stable patients in this episode and the management of hemodynamically unstable PE, including a dissection on indications for thrombolysis, is discussed in detail in our massive PE episode. Many patients with a PE may need supplemental oxygen. Ensure that you focus on the fundamental principles in addition to initiating specific treatment for PE. The cornerstone of treatment for DVT or PE is anticoagulation. There are multiple options for the initial treatment of acute VTE, including direct oral anticoagulants, such as apixaban or rivaroxaban, low molecular weight heparin, transitions to warfarin, adoxaban, or dabigatran, and IV heparin. Which one you choose will depend on a number of factors, including renal and liver function, planned procedures or surgeries, for example, some patients have a concurrent surgical issue, which needs to be addressed promptly, comorbidities, drug interactions, and drug cost or coverage. As part of the bleeding risk assessment, ask about active bleeding and assess bleeding risk factors, such as prior bleeding, impaired renal function, advanced age, and antiplatelet or NSAID therapy use. It is important to check the hemoglobin, platelet count, and anticoagulation studies before initiating anticoagulation as part of the bleeding risk assessment. Expert consultation is recommended for patients with thrombocytopenia, platelet count less than 50, times 10 to the 9 per liter, or known coagulopathy, inherited or acquired bleeding disorder, or use of multiple antithrombotic agents due to increased risk of bleeding with initiation of anticoagulation. The duration of anticoagulation depends on the estimated risk of VTE recurrence. 
if anticoagulation is discontinued, and the risk of bleeding if anticoagulation is continued, and other patient-specific factors, including patient values and preferences. Let's end off with five takeaway points for the diagnosis and management of PE. 1. Many patients with VTE have no known risk factors. You must therefore have a high suspicion for PE in anyone presenting with shortness of breath, unexplained hypoxia, or chest pain. 2. You should always get an ECG in patients with suspected PE. This will help rule out important differential diagnoses such as acute coronary syndrome. 3. Once you have taken a history and conducted a physical exam, calculate a well score to decide on further investigations. A D-dimer is not always necessary, particularly if the patient is already considered at moderate to high risk of PE, in which case you should proceed directly to imaging with a CTPA or VQ scan. 4. A CTPA is routinely used for diagnosis of PE. A VQ scan may be preferable in patients with severe renal impairment, pregnancy, and IV contrast allergies. 5. Options for anticoagulation include DOAC, warfarin, low molecular weight heparin, or IV heparin, depending on the patient's renal and liver function, comorbidities, and hemodynamic stability. Did you know that Factor V Leiden is the most common hereditary hypercoagulability disorder among Europeans? It is named after the Dutch city, Leiden, in which it was discovered in 1994. Interestingly, women with this condition have a survival advantage during pregnancy, as they had a reduced risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Heterozygosity for Factor V Leiden is common, up to 10% of individuals of European descent, and is considered to be a mild risk factor for a first episode of VTE event, compared to other risk factors such as surgery, cancer, or hospitalization for acute medical illness. Although testing is frequently considered in the setting of unprovoked VTE, the risk of recurrence associated with unprovoked nature of VTE, i.e. absence of risk factors, is a much more potent predictor of VTE recurrence. Therefore, testing for Factor V Leiden is controversial because asymptomatic affected individuals may never experience venous thromboembolism and are not treated unless they develop VTE, and the presence of heterozygous Factor V Leiden does not impact decisions about the type and duration of treatment for the most part. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, What is the Well Score? An Approach to DVT and PE. This episode was written by Dr. Daniel Latta, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. James Zhang, general internal medicine, and Dr. Deborah Siegel, hematology thrombosis. The Internetwork series was created by Alison Lai and developed by Zara Morelli and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was produced by Nathan Dupnik and recorded by Zara Morelli. Music production by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. Please check out our website for other podcasts related to this topic, including an Ask a Fellow episode on Massive PE and on Obstetric VTE. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Also check out our website for an associated infographic. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.